Hello, and welcome to the TNT Show. I'm John Drummond. I'm your host for the next 60 exciting minutes. Guaranteed, guaranteed exciting minutes. And we have yet another great guest. You always get great guests on the show. It's a guarantee. And I'm really excited that he's able to be with us tonight. Tonight, the TNT Show welcomes Kenny Farquharson. Kenny is an award-winning journalist and columnist in the Times newspaper. Previously, he was with Scotland on Sunday as editor and also with the Scotsman. So he's got a long and honourable track record in Scottish journalism. Now to our guest. Tonight, the nation talks to Kenny Farquharson. Welcome, Kenny. How are you coping with the pandemic? Oh, the pandemic. Thank you, John, for having me on. And, and uh, hello, everyone watching at home. Pleasure to be here. Um, pandemic, well, my party days are behind me, John. You know, my drinking and clubbing and carousing days are well in the past. So uh, I'm not really miss, missing much. I have a... I live such a quiet and blameless life these days. You know, I'm, I'm like a monk, so uh, I'm, 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 it's not, not really much of a difference to me, to be honest. Really? Really? Honest? That's good, that's good to know. That is very good to know. Tell us a little bit about your background, Kenny. You, you grew up in Dundee, is that right? That's right, yeah. I'm, uh, my, uh, I was born in 1962. My, I was brought up on the Hilltown area in Dundee a less than salubrious area, perhaps, I think it's fair to say. My father was a, was a, was a tool maker and he, he uh, worked for Timex and my, my mother was a shorthand typist and uh, she worked in the jute mills, um, in the office in the jute mills. And, um, okay. But we I mean, it was, it was kind of, it was not salubrious, as I said, John, I mean, it was like um, two rooms in a tenement with no toilet, um, no bath, no shower, um, shared toilet on the stair with three other families. Uh, that, that kind of, um, tenement life and uh, uh, very happy though and very secure um, very very stable upbringing and 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 you know very contented uh, kind of family background until I was in my mid-teens and I lost my father in a car crash when I was uh, 14 uh, he was age 38 so that was obviously a very difficult time and quite a formative time as well as you can imagine yeah I'm very sorry to hear that Kenny it, oh. it reminds me a little bit of Brian Cox because he lost his father when he was eight yeah, and his mother was so very deeply affected that she needed uh, help and treatment. So he was sort of brought up by, you know, the extended family, as it were. Yes. Uh, so uh, yeah. Uh, by the way, I was in Dundee recently, and I went to visit some of the old mills that have been converted into museums. I mean, hugely impressive to, to learn that the average lifespan for somebody who lived in Dundee was a fraction of that of somebody who lived outside of Dundee. Yeah, because of the extreme conditions in the mills, quite an eye opener. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I I left Dundee when I was eighteen years old to go to university, and uh, I've never actually lived and worked in the city since. But uh, I kind of carry it with me, and uh, it's a uh, something I feel myself as a, I consider myself as a kind of unofficial Dundonian ambassador, and it's it's it is very important to me. I go home for the football and things, you know, and um, you know, I, and I do carry with me the the, the, the you know the memory of. Of of my time there, but my father was um, had, had kind of I think these days it's called periods of of uh, insecure employment. You know, he, he at one stage he was selling uh, encyclopedias around doors and he was driving a nice cream van and things like that. And so there's a kind of you know even though you're too young to process it, and I we never I never appreciated that we were in difficulties at all yeah. at the time. But um, there must be something psychologically and emotionally perhaps that that kind of is instilled in you and, and becomes part of how you view the world, yeah. um, consciously or not. And 
you know, it's whether or not you, you through a process of, you know, you're beginning to realise this or it, it comes out in what you do with your life. Yeah. So when did you decide to get into journalism? Was that early on after university or was that sometime afterwards? Um, I, I'd always been able to write for some reason. I don't, there was only five books in our house. Do you see behind I've got the... Got a number of huge bookshelves in my house these days. I've got a house full of books, I've got thousands of books. But when I was growing up, there was only five books in the house, and one of them was a, a Haynes manual for a Ford Escort. You know, it was like, and, and the other one was the Bible. You know, it was like, you know, there was a practical man's book of things to make and do. You know, there were none of, none of, none of it was, was great literature. But, you know, the, the, there's also lots of conversation um, around and talking and language and, you know, spoken language rather than written language. Um, so I always had a, um, a great love of language and that seemed to come out. Uh, so I knew I was good at it. And you know, initially I wanted to be a police dog handler. That's what I always wanted to do when I was young. Um, and it was only when I was taken aside and told, no, you're going to university, you're going to do something else, son. Um, you know, you're not going to be a police dog handler. I was very disappointed at that. Um, but I, And then I wanted to be uh, a psychologist because I've always been interested. I think that... My early experience with my father, um, losing my father, I think, gave me an interest in people and resilience and, uh, you know, uh, emotional intelligence. And uh, yeah. I was, I was kind of, you know, the, I think an experience like that at a young age, it almost, it's like, it's like it tunes your emotional antennae and you become kind of aware of, of, of people and how they're feeling, how they react to you and how they they deal with each other so that very much interest and it still interests me john i mean for me that's what interests me in politics you know some people are interested in politics as a as a policy thing or as a, a, a an ideology thing or a, or a nationality thing for me it's politics is all about people it's understanding people in power how they act in certain situations understanding them psychologically understanding the 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 the, the voters understanding yeah. them Individually yeah. and as a mass, how they respond to things. And that's it's that constant fascination with with people uh, that, that that interests me. But you know, but I went to university. I went to study uh, English at Aberdeen University, and then I did a postgrad in in journalism at Cardiff University. And then got my apprenticeship at the Coventry Evening Telegraph, writing um, in the, about the car industry actually in the mid eighties. So uh, that's how I got into it. Really. That must have been fun. It was enormous fun, you know, and, and and journalism is fun. It's kind of better than working for a living. It really is. It, it, it doesn't. It's hard work, but it never feels like a lot of work a lot of times, you know. But it's taken me all around the world and got me into some scrapes and got me into some interesting places and met some interesting people you wouldn't normally. I mean, it's taken me to Afghanistan and you know New York and Washington and Beirut and you know it's. Um, uh, Northern Ireland, particularly during the Troubles, was I, I was there a lot during the Troubles and did a lot of work there. And of course, as a political editor, which I was for about 20 years, really, it gives you a front row seat on Scotland's rebirth as a, as a, as a democratic nation. And, you know, that was, you know, the um, being involved in the campaigning and the journalism that, that, that agitated, you know, we were, we were criticised as, as fans were typewriters, you know, pushing for a Scottish parliament. And uh, that was one of the main criticisms of the Scottish press at that time. And, and guilty, <laughs> absolutely guilty. And that's what we saw. We saw we were addressing a democratic deficit. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and, and the newspapers I was involved with at the time, Scotland and Sunday, they were campaigning newspapers. 
campaigning for home rule, campaigning for Scottish self-determination. And um, and it's sometimes curious, John, you're kind of, you know, when you get some of the criticism from the, the yes side these days, you know, about, about being a an evil unionist, you know, and it's, and I, I occasionally, uh, I usually bite I my tongue, but occasionally I say, well, you know, people, there's a whole generation of people who you can damage as unionists who devoted their almost their entire adult lives and their careers to fighting for Scottish self-determination to get a Scottish Parliament after, you know, a couple, after hundreds of years. So it's so, sometimes it feels it it can feel a little bit raw sometimes when you're on the end and uh, of some of these criticisms and being treated as if you paint the curbstones red, white, and blue. You know, so it's not entirely true. I mean, you can understand. I suspect why people might take that view though, because in many respects, you know, the, the, if politics, if watching politics, I suppose teaches you anything, it's the fact that it's it's a movable feast. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a bit of a circus. It, it, it's there, but it moves on. Uh, and the successful, uh, if I can call them participants, uh, move with it. They, they, they move in, in, in lockstep with history. Uh, and that's about big change as opposed to small changes, you know. Uh, and that separates statesmen from politicians, I suppose, at the end of the day. So, uh, and, some, and everyone moves at a different speed. Everyone's on a journey, you could argue, but not all at the same speed. So therefore, mm-hmm. the likelihood is that some people will, will disagree because their rate of change is, desired change is greater than other people's, for example. Uh, and everybody needs to come to a view on that, what they, what they feel comfortable with. And it varies across age and a whole raft of different, uh, as your psychological training would probably determine too. Uh, so it's not to be too unexpected. And also, you don't, I suspect, want to be in an environment where everyone agrees because uh-huh. I'm, I'm always reminded of the old adage that I think it was Ben Franklin who said way back 200, 200 years ago, news is what somebody somewhere doesn't want to see in print. Anything else is advertising. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, you know, and, and that, that's part of the fun of it. You know, John, it's, it, there's, there's a kind of insurgent, rebellious, or just troublemaking. You know, there's, there's, the people in journalism, certainly it has attracts people that aren't necessarily employable in the real world, you know, because they have a, a certain kind of a combination of character traits which aren't necessarily always uh, regarded as uh, as positive in the in the corporate world. But um, yeah, it, yeah, making you a good journalist, you know, kind of resilience, kind of tenaciousness and uh, uh, tenacity, I should say, tenaciousness. Um, yeah, that, that worked. Uh, if you were in the States, that, that would work. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> should have just carried on there. I should have just carried on there. But you know that that's uh, the, the 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 you know the 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 skills needed. The kind of uh, psychological foot in the door is um, is, a, yeah. is a much underrated skill. Yeah, I, I remember. I think it was Andrew Marr said in his memories that one of the jobs he was given. Well, I think he started in the northeast of England. Some newspaper there was when there was some sort of uh, death, his job was to go and get a photograph of the deceased, which meant a yeah. foot in the door. <laughs> and and, yeah. do you know, and I've, I've, I've done that on the mantelpiece. Yeah. Do you know, I've, I've done that myself, John, and it's, um, there's, um, there's a woman at Strathclyde University, I think, who is writing a book about that. It's called The Death Knock. And, um, and you know, I'm, I'm maybe I'm slightly unusual because I've, I've both done that and been on the receiving end of it. Uh, in my family on a couple of occasions 
there's a way of doing it. There's a way of doing it that can that is respectful and can actually be a great process of catharsis for the family and yeah. for some people. Uh, and and to be able to do it well, do it with sensitivity, to do it right, and yeah. to have you know, I've, I've had people say that you know it's the only time in 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 their loved one's life that they got their name in the paper, and yeah. it had to be right, and you had to take care to do it right. And yeah. I remember um, my uncle died a few years ago. It's a couple of years ago, and um, he was a, a maintenance man at the NCR factory for many many years, and um, he was also a great golfer, and he was like so he's captain of one of the municipal golf clubs and Caird Park Golf Club. So he got a few paragraphs in the Courier, and um, it was it wasn't that much. It was like eight paragraphs or something down page in the Courier, but it was beautifully done. Every detail was right, and it was lovely. And I, I actually wrote to the Courier editor at the, at the time and said, "Look, you don't you won't get many of these letters, but you know, please." <laughs> If you give my thanks to the reporter who did that yeah. small, yeah. insignificant story about a golf club captain yeah. that you know will be cut out and kept by that family for yeah. the rest of their lives, you know, and, yeah. uh, and it's, it's really important. So you know, the, there's um, there's a way of doing these things and doing them well. Yeah. yeah. My, my the trick the trick that I was taught. Okay, this is telling journalism secrets, but was to go and find the local minister or priest. And take them to the front door with you. Right. That was that was what the that was, I got taught that in Belfast when I did, I did some work in Belfast. Right. And that's what the, the, the the journalist in the Belfast Telegraph taught me: find the local priest or minister, yeah. and walk to the front door with them because you'll because they'll they'll always you'll always get in. Yeah. yeah. That, there's there's a journalist secret for you, John. There you are, folks. All you aspiring journalists out there. Now I suspect there'll be more than a few because. And as much as journalists uh, get lots of criticism, and I'm sure you get your fair share, there's, there's still a big appetite amongst a lot of young people who would like to you know, see their name in print to be able to make a contribution to the development of, of, of the country generally. And they see that journalism is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is an avenue to, to doing that. You know? mm -hmm. But let's, let's talk about that for a second, because, I mean, you must experience this. There is a fairly sharp downturn in in readership of newspapers nowadays, you know, I mean, I'm of a certain age now, where I enjoy reading a newspaper. The, the physicalness of the newspaper is important to me, <laughs> but I suspect, you know, I'm a very much a dying breed here, and when I look yeah. at the stats, they're pretty stark, frankly. Yeah, I think that I mean, there's no denying that you know that well, if if you look at it. Stand right back from it. Look at it on a wide-angle lens. The printed newspapers have been in decline since the mid 1970s. Yeah. This is not generally. This is not just the internet that's doing this. It's not just smartphones. It was radio. It was television. It was uh, all all kinds of things. So so you know the printed word has been in decline in the Western world anyway since the mid 1970s. And uh, but the appetite for news doesn't change. All that changes is the, the the means by which people want to actually access the news. So, yeah, even the mainstream media organisations that get so much stick and some of it quite justified, yeah. um, they're not really losing readers. They're losing readers for their printed products. Yeah, but they're they're, they're you know the, the, that readership is just going online. Yeah, and the problem being faced by industries such as my own is that 
people still want news, but you have to persuade them to pay for news in a different way. They were able, they were willing to pay for it when they were getting, you know, the Dundee Evening Telegraph yeah. buttons at the corner when they're coming out the factory gate. They're willing to pay for, you know, papers that have magazines in them. You know, the, yeah. the, the, even these days, the the the, the, the the sales of our Saturday paper are much greater than the sales of the daily paper. Um, but it's getting to people to pay for their news constantly. And uh, the, the industry, the media industry, has not been nimble enough, not been smart enough yeah. over the last couple of decades to, 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 to find a way to make that happen on a, on a sustainable basis. Now, the Times, as well as being one of the world's great newspapers, the oldest newspapers, you know, founded in 1785. Uh, you know, it's it's had lots of struggles over that time. My editor, John Witherow, has a great line that he sometimes uses. He says that the Times is now making a profit for the first time since the French Revolution. <laughs> you know, and and it's it's and we we are making a profit because we've we we have found a way using a subscription model to get people to pay for what they regard as trusted journalism. Now, yeah. I've no doubt some of your viewers tonight, John, will, 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 will be splitting into their, into their cup of tea, you know, on the phrase trusted journalism. But, you know, it's, um, you know, that, that's, what, that's what we feel we are trying to offer. Yeah. And you may not agree with it, but it's sincerely offered and professionally done, I would argue. And we've got correspondents all around the world. We've got, commentators from every political corner of the political spectrum. In Scotland, we're doing, you know, we've got a, a, a great politics team, a great sports team, a great kind of uh, lifestyle team. We've got a, a supplement at the weekend called Alba that covers food and holidays and lifestyle and arts. Yeah. So we, we, we're, we're trying our best and we have about, you know, 25,000 people on a daily basis who pay for our journalism, whether it's... Um, Buying a physical paper or, or 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 you know money to a subscription model to, to read it online. So you know it's um I, I'm I'm by by nature I'm not a, I'm not a a a hone woe is me kind of guy. I'm a more of a, a glass half full type of bloke. And um, when people are writing about this age in a hundred years time, they're going to be talking about us. And, and this time, and, and the media, like they talk about Caxton, yeah. you know, this is like a Caxton type moment, yeah. you know, in, in in the history of mass dissemination of information. It's it's in, 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 it's exciting, it's, you know, the the amount of the ability to get information to people all around the world. You know, a kid with a smart with a with a with a with a, a mobile phone in Kenya, the access that they have. To the world's knowledge that it just wasn't possible for them yeah. 10, 15 years ago. And it's um, you know, so I think we 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 naturally have a tendency to look for the negatives, but I think the positives are enormous. And yeah. something like Twitter, um, you know, some of social media, it's enormously democratic. You know, like I was I was doing a talk to kids studying journalism at Glasgow College the other week, and I was saying to them, you know. Before, now these are these are working class kids just trying to get a foothold to get a diploma in journalism. They're not doing degrees necessarily in journalism, you know. So they're they're they're, they're starting out at perhaps a lower level. And um, I was saying, you know, they have direct access to the most powerful people in the world, yeah, and on exactly the same basis 
as yeah. the people who went to posh schools, the people who who you know who's who who, who come from big houses and bears den, you yeah. know the people who 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 have all the advantages of everybody else. They just have the same Twitter account as uh, you know a, a wee guy who's just you know you know from a scheme who's just starting studying journalism at, at Glasgow College. They yeah. have the same access to the powerful, and all that all that they need is is, is application, attitude. Yep. Resilience, persistence, charm, and um, the underestimated kind of uh, thing. Be charming, <laughs> and uh, you, know, you get. Whereas before, like, in, in the, you know, when I was trying to get, uh, when I was starting as a journalist, trying to get to anybody of power, you had yep. to go through receptionists and uh, you know switchboards and yep. you know use, use influence and use power and use um, use any advantages you had, and it was much much more difficult. Yeah, it is. Yeah, well, I, I suspect we're. I think I agree with you. But I think we're on the cusp of even bigger change. But uh, let's move on to some questions now, Kenny. With me, uh, Callum McLeod is asking, hey, Kenny, do you think uh, honest UK mainstream journalists show bias against the devolved parliament? Um, I never really detected it until recently. The what I detected was before was a kind of curiosity because we, you know, we were an innovation. Yeah. Um, uh, when we were setting up the parliament, and you know, a lot of the the things that we 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 had the advantage of not being burdened by, you know, hundreds of years of history, so we yeah. could the Scottish Parliament. I remember I, I wrote the um, the code of conduct for journalists for the Scottish Parliament way back because I was the convener of the Scottish Parliamentary Journalists Association back in the late nineties, and um, and so we were able to do things like you know counter journalists who were trying to be lobbyists, which there were a lot. In the in 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 Westminster, yeah. um, you know there was a, a you know the 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 editor of Widget, this political editor of Widget Monthly was actually a lobbyist for the widget industry. You know, it was, yeah. it was that kind of that kind of thing. You know, so you know, so there was a lot of interest in how we did things. A lot of interest in um, the committee system and what have you. I think you know only now am I beginning to see a kind of a, a, a questioning of the purpose and legitimacy of the Scottish Parliament, and it's it's alongside that is a kind of a, an emboldenment of the kind of people who, and there was a lot of them, voted no for a Scottish Parliament yeah. back in '97. So it isn't just the down south; it's people in Scotland as well. Okay, yeah. so these were and there was a lot. Of, there was about, you know I can't remember the exact number, but there was maybe about thirty percent or something of Scottish mm. voters voted yeah. no. Voted no, no, in the yeah. two question referendum against the Scottish Parliament. Now, in the twenty years since then, those people went quiet. Okay? They, yeah. they, 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 they kind of saw that they'd lost the argument, and they went along. They were caught up in the in the enthusiasm, perhaps, or they caught up in the the, the sweep of history. They realised yeah. they were perhaps on the wrong side of history, yeah. and they kind of kept stewing. And I've noticed, perhaps, in the last year. Or two, particularly, a much more vocal uh, unionism about which is anti Holyrood, anti Scottish Parliament, coming to the fore, being much more vocal, and not really finding any purchase uh, within the, the even the Conservative Party in Scotland, which you know, uh, uh, but perhaps is finding a voice now in some kind of outlets um, across the UK. And uh, perhaps in the 
unguarded moments also in some of the comments by the Prime Minister. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's a very gentle way of putting it. <laughs> On Twitter the other day, I, I, when, when he made his uh, unguarded comments, I, I, I said that Boris had pulled the pin out of the grenade and sat on it, you know, and that's pre- yeah. precisely what he's done. Pretty much. It's a bit like Brooks this morning in the Times had him depicted with a cable. Yeah. He stopped short of putting it on one end of his anatomy, but <laughs> left it resting on his head. We've got a question that came in some time ago, Kenny. says, the question is, could you ask Kenny if after 80% of the 2020 indie polls per Professor Curtis with yes over 50% and 13 polls in a row also showing that, if he accepts that India is now the settled majority view in Scotland and that India Ref 2 timing must be for Holyrood to decide in the same way that only Westminster decided on EU referendum timing? Very good question. In fact, that's two questions you'll take them individually. Yeah. First of all, polls. Um, you know, of course, you know, at the moment, the snapshot Scottish people, independence is the majority view and rising. But um, I think that we, we are in a very volatile situation and there's um there's a there's tremendous kind of royal in uh, in, in, in voting and attention here you know, and since 2014 but one in five ye- uh, yes voters have gone to no and slightly more than one in five have gone from no to yes you know so there's there's much more transfer of of, of voters and 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 people the, uh, I don't think it's not even just soft voters. These are people who are who are changing their minds. As some are hard transfers and some are soft transfers and what have you. Yeah. So you know, th- th- there's um, Scottish politics is very fluid. Um, there isn't. A, it's not static. And uh, in particular, you know, there's an idea in the yes movement. If you'll forgive me, John, is that that um, once you once you're yes, you never go back, and that's just not the case. You know, there are about one in five yes voters, as we were saying. Has changed their mind, you know. So there's 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 there's, there's transfers both ways and all to play for on both sides. But yes, definitely at this moment and and on on a momentum as well, uh, yeah. the yes campaign. Um, I don't know how long it will we'll still be. We'll call it the yes campaign, but the pro indie campaign is 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 on a roll. It's got what we in politics call the big mo, the yeah. big momentum behind it. Um, yeah. And it's a very impressive momentum. And, and my own view is that if it gets to 60%, then you start to become a, a tipping point. You know, then it's at a stage where it's going to be very hard to kind of counter. And yeah. at that point, when that's, at that 60%, all other kind of things happen. Once you start to assume that independence is coming and is on the horizon and is now likely rather than just a possibility, you know, all other things start coming into the equation, and people, even people who, for whom independence isn't their first preference, have to come to terms with the possibility of independence and yeah. have to engage in the debate about independence, and that's going to be a fascinating moment. And um, because once you do that, then independence no longer becomes the property of the independence movement, and. This is something which I, I don't think is fully appreciated by yesers, John. It's like the idea that um, you know the, the indie movement won't get to decide what independence is like. The indie movement will, can take Scotland to independence, but once there, 
and, and just short of that, I mean, deciding the, 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 exactly how the new nation would be constituted and yep. what its relationships would be. Um, at that point, that's a decision for all of Scotland. That's as yep. much a decision for people who didn't vote for independence yep. as it is a decision for people who... And that, that's going to be quite... And I don't think that, that the people in the Yes Movement have perhaps made that mental shift. There's a kind of sense of ownership of it, which won't last for long. And, and I think it's going to be, if it comes, and I think it might well come, John, you know, once it comes, um, it, that's going to be quite a difficult moment for people in the independence movement because they're going to have to almost surrender this precious thing that they, has, that they, 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 that they have built and has been, it's felt like theirs. Yeah. And they're going to have to accept that all of Scotland gets to choose what yeah. the new Scotland's going to be like. And there may be decisions and compromises in that process that people don't like. It may be things that they really don't yeah. like. Oh, you're, 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 you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, 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 you may not know this, but I do a column in the, in the Sunday National. And I think the week before I was talking about what happened in the United States when uh, the independence movement won. I mean, th there was no sweetness and light. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> The, the main players would take to the public prints and denounce each other. Yeah. This is after they'd won independence, they defeated the, the biggest and the greatest, biggest navy and the, big, the greatest army in the world, uh, aided much by the French, of course. But having a, got to that status, that condition of independence, there was no real consensus about where the priorities lay. I mean, to the extent that Alexander Hamilton, who effectively created the, the Treasury and the financial arrangements in the United States was at enormous odds with uh, Vice President Van Buren to the extent that there was a duel uh, and uh, they went to the spit of land and they shot at each other. This was not supposed to be serious. Unhappily, Van Buren didn't get the message. He didn't get the memo. And the next day, the, uh, the poor Alexander Hamilton uh, was, was dead. Uh, but that's the that's the nature of um, independence type activities. That, that there's not it's not a smooth process by any means because you're absolutely right. You have to involve lots of people uh, who may have been on a very different uh, position beforehand, and that takes skill. It takes judgment. Very few countries do it smoothly. In fact, I don't think anyone does it smoothly. Uh, but there's lessons in history there which are open to us. Um, here's a question from Darren. Guy says, I've just tuned in. It's a great show. In Indy Scotland, do you foresee many big changes about how the media works? Perhaps fewer changes than you might think. I remember during the referendum campaign, a lot of people, I got this a lot, people on Twitter and elsewhere saying, ah, just you wait till independence, you'll be out of a job and uh, you'll, <laughs> you'll, uh, you know, there won't be any of this, this British papers, you know, in, in, in Scotland, there'll all be Scottish papers for Scottish people, you know, Scottish owned, owned papers. And I'm thinking, what, where do people get that idea? You know, the, 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 the newspapers would be the same. The owners would be the same. The, 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 you know, the staffs would be the same. We wouldn't suddenly be under the control of new nationalist commissars who kind of, you know, who, 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 who gave us a, a patriotism test. You know, as a, things would carry on largely as normal. Um, um, there'd just be an enormously exciting story to follow. And, you know, that there's, 
I, I, I know I'm not the only journalist who, um, regardless of your view of independence, you know, sees the possibility of independence as the biggest story of our lifetimes. Sure, sure. Accept it, and um, if and when that day comes, you know, we will we'll be all over it. We'll be all over. It. We'll be engaged with it, and we'll be intellectually engaged in trying to make it work. Because, yeah. and, I th- and I think this is also something that 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 the Yes Movement, I don't think, fully appreciates, is that, you know, come that day, if that day does come, then we're all Scots in a new country and a new, at the start of a new adventure. You know, we live here, our kids are here, our family's futures are here. You know, we would want to make it work. We would want, with all our hearts, for it to be a huge success. And we would you know, work to, to make it work. You know, this idea that, the, 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 you know, that all this kind of, oh, you would be, you'd be heading back over the border to England. <laughs> no, <laughs> I live here, you know, I'm Scottish. There's, there's a kind of othering of the other side in the constitutional debate, which I think, I think is very regrettable. And, um, I, 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 that's one of the reasons I'm on this program, John. It's, it's the idea that you know it's, it's to kind of break down the kind of yes and no, us and them, Nats and Unions yeah. kind of you know barriers. Because I do honestly think there's more that that connects us than divides us. You know, and uh, and on, on on politics, you know, I, I mean, my own instincts are far more class based than flag based. You know. One of the great nationalists of our generation, John Hume, said, "You know, you can't eat a flag. You know, it's um, uh, you know, I'm 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 motivated uh, by other things other than national identity. But um, a, and you know, and my instincts are you know leading towards cooperation yeah. rather than division. I'm not a fan of of of, of borders or walls. And um, you know, so so that's what I bring to this. But if we get there, then you know I'll be applying those to making a um, an independent Scotland work. Yeah, well, that's that's very interesting to know. But but it's interesting when I look at Irish newspapers, many of them have the same sort of feel as UK papers, but they're addressed to an Irish audience and Irish advertisers. So necessarily they reflect that. I mean, that's the way it seems to me newspapers succeed or fail. You either reflect the society of which you're part, in that case you're a success, uh, or you don't, in that case you've got challenges, if we put it that way. But yeah, I think that's, I think that's a fair point. And also when I look at press overseas, Portugal, Spain, etc., it, it, it tends to be based less specifically on national issues, a bit more about left and right. Mm-hmm. Which is which is the traditional model for most newspapers is they perhaps conform more to that than they do. But when you've got a major constitutional change, of course, that tends to sort of uh, supersede pretty much everything else until you get to those that point where the, the change either is is finally made one way or the other. In that case, it, it goes back to the, you know the conventional, yeah. perhaps. Um, well, on, on that point, John, you know, the kind of, uh, one of the things often said. Um, uh, well, one of the great frustrations, and I understand this, you know, of the, within the independence movement, you know, especially during the referendum, was that, that, you know, there were fewer newspapers supporting, you know, the, the nationalist movement than there was supporting yeah. the, the UK side. And um, the, the, the 2014 referendum enthused enormous amounts of people, which was tremendous to see. It was, 
it was it was heartening to see, and it was it was. But a lot of people came for politics very cold, yeah. and you know they had no interest in politics before. And you get members of the. Um, I remember speaking to to people, and a lot of them joined the SNP. I remember speaking to uh, 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 someone who shall remain nameless within the SNP, but it's within the the structure, high up in the structure of the SNP, shall we say, who was, you know, saying you had to explain to people what politics was. You had to explain to them. You had to, on the first SNP conference after the referendum, you had to tell, you had to explain to people, people what a conference was and what a motion yeah. was and what a policy was and what a manifesto was. People just didn't have a lot of the, the information on it. And I think as a result of that, the, 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 a lot of people who came to the independent, to, to, to politics in 2014, couldn't understand why it wasn't just a tabla rasa where everyone just started from position A, then chose their sides. Yeah. And the newspapers did the same. I don't know how they thought this was going to happen, but you know that the would you know half the newspapers would be uh, UK supporting, half would be independent supporting, and then um, the, 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 the and I think there's still a kind of a failure to appreciate that people and institutions bring their institutional memory and their history and their instincts to a question like Scottish independence. And, you know, the, and, and an organisation like The Herald, you know, one of the world's oldest newspapers, older even than The Times, um, and the Scotsman, Scotsman's going on since, since um, 1812. You know, the, the, the Scotsman, is, Scotsman is, a you know, I, I was deputy editor of The Scotsman at one stage and I, and I ran the sister paper Scotland on Sunday as well during the uh, referendum. And, you know, these are organisations that were campaigning for Scottish home rule, Scottish self-determination, a Scottish parliament. Yeah. Half a century, you know, a century and a half before the SNP was invented. Yeah. You know, they, 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 they are imbued in a history of this. And, you know, they, they, this is what they bring to, 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 to this question. And so it's going to take quite a lot to deflect something like that. From, it, from, isn't from isn't the that case happened. also, Kenny, that, I mean, that, that's, that's certainly the case. I mean, institutions, uh, particularly business institutions, and newspapers are businesses, uh, first and foremost. They need to shift copies, as you said earlier. They need to satisfy advertisers. Otherwise, I mean, frankly, you, you're back to student newspapers. <laughs> you're not fast who buys. <laughs> you just want to get your point of view across. Well, that's not going to be sustainable certainly in today's world. But nonetheless, you've got a situation here where it seems to me that it's confusing for many people when they look at newspapers. Because if you don't mind me saying so, I think newspapers sometimes do a very poor job at explaining what they're about. Mm -hmm. They leave it to the reader to figure it out. I mean, for example, you could argue, and some have, that if you look at the Conservative Party, which is now called the Conservative and Unionist Party, at one time, it did beat the home rule drum very forcibly. You know? mm-hmm. And you could argue that that, that drumbeat was collected by newspapers like The Scotsman and perhaps The Herald, and it reflected that uh, mm-hmm. pressure for home rule, as it was called then, and maybe it's still called in some quarters. But it was a genuine way of saying, yeah, we, we like to be Scots at home, but Brits in London. And we can straddle that. It's possible yes. to straddle that at, at that time. That, that was, I think that was a fairly general view. 
and I don't think a lot of people fully appreciate the Conservative Party was a place where people talked about home rule, and the Scotsman, I guess, reflected that in others. Now it's a very different creature. Yeah. And yeah. one of the thoughts that occurs to me, and I'll, I'll probably be talking about this on Sunday, is how long can this entity stay together where you have a, a right-wing party uh, which uniquely is not nationalist? Looking across Europe and elsewhere, I mean, most, most okay. independent movements have a right-wing element to them. Uh, Scotland uniquely has none. <laughs> Uh, now, when I, I spoke to uh, Andy McIver, he reckoned that's because the SAP did such a fantastic job in subsuming right and left into itself. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure I was wholly convinced of that argument, but but it is, it is, a, it is an argument. Uh, that, that is definitely the case. You know, that, that, and you look around Europe, there is usually, or if you look at countries with nationalist movements, um, almost all of them have, thinking about Quebec, thinking about Catalonia, thinking about the Basque country, there's at least two nationalist parties. Okay? Yeah. There's one that's of the left, traditionally, you know, almost almost a revolutionary party. Yeah. And there's one which is a kind of a right wing, usually kind of blood and soil nationalist. Yeah, you don't like foreigners, yeah. Yeah, kind of, you know, and... Um, uh, and to think, and, and I, I think Andy McKeever is entirely right. I think both of those elements exist within the SNP. And one of the things, I think we are greatly served by and have been by uh, the dominant SNP leadership of the past half a century. And it's been, in the most part, on the, the liberal, centrist, centre-left Bit of, of 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 the political spectrum now, and I think nationalism in Scotland has it has been. I, I hesitated to use the word blessed, but we've been lucky in our leaders in the Scottish nationalist movement because it could very easily have gone the other way. A, a charismatic figure, and you know who knows what it will be in the future, John. You know, I can yeah. a charismatic figure who captures the national imagination, especially in a time of national crisis. And runs with that, that, and I think Andy McKeever is right. There is the, you know, to, to, to think that the Scottish nationalist movement, unique among all nationalist movements in the world, does not have a blood and soil populist, you know, kind of element in it, would be, you know, it would be a miracle if that was the case. It's not the case. So, I think it's I think not the case. Another, another point of view, Kenny, which is that why hasn't somebody? As they have in every other country, said, uh, "I'm a conservative, but I want to be a nationalist, and I don't want to be part of any wishy-washy SNP type grouping. I'll do what every other uh, right-wing nationalist does. I'll form my own party." Yeah. Instead of that, we've got. I mean, if you are, if you are such a person, you're stuck with the conservative and unionist party. Uh, you're never going to right now have any hope of changing the SNP. So you would think logically that the Conservative and Unionists would cleave and then there would be a representation of people like that, which exists everywhere else, but you'd have to agree it exists here, but there is no absolutely no sign of it. And, and people have to sign up to two things. You have to be a Conservative and a Unionist. And that's maybe increasingly unrealistic. I, I, I suspect, John, 
Yeah, I, I think you're, you're entirely right. And the possibility does exist on the right of uh, within conservative politics. I would suggest, though, yet that we may be looking in the wrong place. And I may not be um, surprised to anybody watching this, but there is um, something of a civil war going on within the SNP at the moment. And there are elements, there are, there are characteristics in the two groupings that are forming within. And I have no hesitation calling it a civil war because that's what it is because it's, there's, there's a division on personalities as to whether people are aligned more to Nicholas Sturgeon or to Alex Salmon. There's a, a division on strategy for independence as to whether or not you know, people think Nicola is dragging her feet. And there's a division on what can only be described as culture war issues on I think the one that's convulsing in the party at the moment is over transgender, but it goes more broadly than that. I think I'm just waiting for COVID lockdown to become an issue in that in that division. You know, there's already some murmurings within parliamentary uh, SNP folk about the, um, the, the uh, who are unhappy at the line being taken by the first minister on on on, on lockdown. And um, I think it's only a matter of time before that kind of manifests itself in um, a more vocal unhappiness. So, and, and, and the reason I, I don't hesitate in talking about a civil war is that the people who are against the First Minister or, or, or not supporting them are the people who don't like her individually over the issues like the, you know, the, the, the rose from the, the salmon uh, trial, for example. Mm-hmm. Those, those people are, are the ones who, who think she's dragging her feet on independence. They're also the ones who believe she is too woke and too um, uh, engaged in a, 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 and on a side of the, the, um, the gender war, uh, the, the, the culture war, perhaps a bit of a Freudian slip there, gender war and culture war do overlap. Do you remember Hillary Clinton talked about the deplorables? There's a similar critique within a section of the SNP. Yeah. There, there's, there's a section of deplorables yeah. some, uh, within, within Scottish nationalism, if you listen to some people in the SNP. So, you know, I, I, I say that just to, to describe what I'm yeah. told about, about divisions within the party. So there is, I would suggest, John, that the, the, at least the seeds oh, yeah. of kind of nationalist movement, I mean, centre-right I, I, nationalist movement, Within the SNP, and at some stage, it may manifest itself in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in in some form. Yeah, it would be interesting because, generally speaking, I, I think your analysis earlier is spot on. Once you move to our sixty percent, you you get a repositioning. Newspapers yeah. reposition, advertisers reposition, the business community repositions. Everyone sort yeah. of moves a little bit. They, they, they sort of they, they say, "Well, I'm not." Because you, what you can't afford is to be caught on the wrong side. <laughs> when history changes, you don't want to be on the wrong side. You really don't. Because then you're completely flanked by somebody who might not be of the same quality you do, because they have to move faster. Particularly in business, you have to be first. You can't afford to be me too when it comes to these things. And I, I think there will be some interesting things there. If you were to assess the mood in the uh, Conservative Party in Scotland just now, how would you describe it? In one word, appalled. The people that I speak to within Scottish Tory Party are depressed, angry, frustrated, 
you know, but they're appalled at what they see as the attitudes in um, in 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 London within what is meant to be their their party, and it's attitudes to Scotland and its apparent inability to grasp that the union is in danger. Now, you know, I'm not a unionist with a capital U. I, I, try, I you know, my, my my background is a kind of from a working class Catholic family rebels against the description, you know, but um. That there's, there's, you know, there's, there's a very um, sincere unionism in Scotland among uh, many conservatives, in particular, that is not shared by the conservatives down south, and that's a matter of great concern and some sadness for Tories in Scotland. And frankly, you know, I, I was speaking to one Tory parliamentarian. And I was saying, well, what's going to happen? What's the great? What's the great um, plan? What's the what's the what's the, the the union unit going to come up with? What's that really clever guy, Michael Gove, with the brain size of a planet? What's he going to be doing here? What's the plan? And he said, "Then I had your breath." You know, it's um, if there is one, they're keeping it very, very quiet. So quiet that they're not even telling some of their Scottish colleagues about it because, you know, they they are they are. Every the every instinct of the Boris Johnsons of this world is to kind of roll their eyes at the very idea of devolution, and um, and we saw that this week, and you know it was a, it was a a rare glimpse of the how he act, what he actually thinks the kind of the kind of things that before were only said in private or were said in a semi public forum, and you know that 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 I don't think he is intellectually. Emotionally, politically, ideologically equipped to come up with what's necessary to save, you know, uh, the, the 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 to save. You, you, good point. Do, do you think Michael Gove is? I think I think he probably is. I mean, I I, um, I used to be Michael Gove's editor. He was a he was a he was a he wrote a column for me for Scotland on Sunday when he was an opposition MP. And first of all, I have to say he's one of the best journalists I've ever met. He would phone up on a Saturday morning with an idea. I would agree with the idea, and about 40 minutes later, the 1,000 words was chuntering through the, the fax machine. You know, it, was, um, it, was, it, 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 it almost took longer to write it, uh, to read it, than he took to write it. And it was, um, it was, uh, he has, he has a, a, a considerable mind. I do worry as I worry about all Scots who live for a period of time in London, whether they lose that kind of granular, textural understanding of opinion in Scotland, because yeah. it moves fast, you know, yeah. and, um, you, know, look, look, you know, look where we are now just compared to six months ago. Who knows where we will be in six months' time, you yeah. know? Who knows what will happen with all kinds of things can happen, yeah. you know, not least within the SNP. We've um, had a question come in just very quickly because we're running out of time. Yeah, sure. I did say this hour goes fast, and heavens, it goes fast. It always. Uh, D. Rose is asking, I wonder if Kerry could ever see Sir Keir Starmer winning back seats in Scotland with a promise of full devolution, federal max, everything besides defence and foreign policy. I, I'm slightly biased. John, because you know that that's been my position for twenty five years. I've always tried to, uh, in my political journalism, I've always occupied that space 
yeah. in the constitutional question that was further than the Labour Party was willing to go, but not as far as the SNP would like. And that's always been where I've been. Yeah. And it, for me, the most interesting place within the Scottish political debate, not least because I think that potentially that's where a majority of people lie. And if you have a credible, call it what you like, and it's called everything. And sometimes it's 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 it's, it's conveniently vague what people mean by Debo Max or you know indie light or federalism. I, I don't want to rush you, but we're coming to. All right, okay, yeah, no. So I, I to, to, to 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 sum up on that, I I, I, um, I think the potential is there. Just now, I don't really see the meat on the bones. Yeah. Uh, that, that, would, that would suggest that he has something off the peg that can immediately appeal to people and make a difference in that time. I mean, I, I, in fairness, Andy McIver said much the same thing, mm. slightly different wording, because he comes at it from a slightly different perspective, I suppose. But uh, I mean, he, he's a great proponent of federalism. Yeah. To some degree, based on his experience in Quebec and Canada. But the point I put to him was a fairly basic one, which is in order to do that, you'd have to have some sort of written constitution. Because yeah. otherwise you wouldn't be able to define what a nation is and what yeah. the parts of a nation are. And you'd have to decide who's sovereign and who's not. I mean, yeah. it, you can't do these things in a minute. You just can't. Because any constitution that doesn't have public endorsement, is, it, it doesn't, it's not a constitution. And how you would achieve that in the UK right now is beyond yeah. my ken. So that was the point I put to him. It may be a good idea in principle. The practical problems in getting to doing it would be absolutely immense because you have to convince everyone in England that a, a written constitution was a good idea and fe a federal system would be a good idea. And I think that would be a, an enormous sell, frankly. Which is why I think probably, John, the, 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 the more short-term, maybe the more achievable answer is, is, is that, that delightful phrase, asymmetric federalism. That you just give the extra powers to Scotland, and you yeah. give extra, um, uh, you cement the Scottish Parliament into the British Constitution much more securely. You give powers in Scotland to far more powers over welfare, taxation, immigration, yeah. and uh, what you do is you 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 try and you you just you just do federalism in Scotland without bothering with the rest of the country, and let let England find its own way to best reflect the wishes of the English people. And that, that, that's probably my position at the moment. Uh, I understand that. As a constitutionalist, I would say the best of luck. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's just about the most complicated thing to do in politics. Yeah. Is asymmetric devolution or asymmetric federalism. Boy, that's, that, that is a challenge, I have to say. It's not so it, it, It's been great tonight. You, you, you've been a great guest. We're, we're almost out of time. I need to say thank you very much because it's it's been excellent. Oh, and very importantly, support Indie Live, please, and Indie Live Radio because these guys do a great job on a shoestring budget. Let me tell you, you know, what you see may look somewhat glossy from time to time, but it takes a lot of hard work behind the scenes to make it appear so. Oh, and by the way, can I really, really underline and recommend using the What's On Guide? You'll find it on www.whatsonguide.scot. In addition to all of the programs in Indie Live, like this one and many others, you'll find there's a, a button you can press for Indie Live Radio. So while you're scanning the programs that are available, you can actually listen to the radio at the same time. Hey, how's that for 21st century technology? Okay, thanks again for joining us. 
Thank you. A big thank you to Kenny. And join us next Wednesday, please. And remember, it's been a great day for British democracy. Good night, all.